0: It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 56, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Emily Oakley owns and operates Three Springs Farm in Oaks, Oklahoma, with her husband, Mike Apple. Since 2003, they've sold their organic vegetables through a CSA and at a farmer's market. They've purposely chosen to keep their farm small, not just in acres but also in overall production, substituting tractors and equipment for labor on their three acres of vegetable production where they gross about $80,000 a year with a net of well over half of that. We talk about their choice to limit their acres, their work hours, and their growing season and get into the ways that their farm changed when their child was born three years ago. With its unpredictable weather and biblical pest outbreaks, Emily says that if you can farm in Oklahoma, you can farm anywhere. So we also dig into how Three Springs Farms manages uncertainty and risk, both in the field and in its business management processes. Emily was also recently appointed to the National Organic Standards Board, and she shares her perspective on organic certification and community service with us. I had a lot of fun talking to Emily. I hope you enjoyed this episode just as much as I enjoyed making it for you. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by farmers Web, small business software for farmers. Farmers Web allows you to streamline wholesale ordering and operations, making it easier to work with your buyers, reducing costs and increasing your capacity. Farmersweb.com. Emily Oakley, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled that you could join us today. You came to my attention a friend of mine said, "Oh, you've got to get you've got to get Emily on the podcast." She's she's just a she's a bundle of energy and she's doing some really interesting things in a place where you wouldn't expect that somebody was doing interesting
1: things. <laughs> uh, yes, we're in Oklahoma and there aren't a whole lot of organic farmers um, doing this sort of market vegetable production for a living in this area. So we are a bit unique in this
0: in this space. Tell us about this type of farming. What are you doing and and where in Oklahoma are you doing it and on what kind of a scale are you doing it at?
1: Yeah, so we my partner Mike Appel and I have own 20 acres in Northeastern Oklahoma. We're near the small town of Oaks, um, but we only have three in annual vegetable production and then about another two and a half in perennials, which is definitely a challenge. <laughs> and if I had to do it over again, would not have so much. Um, we sell through a farmer's market on Saturday in Tulsa, which we're an hour away from. And we sell from April through Labor Day, so a five-month marketing period. And we also have a CSA, and we have sort of the farmer's market CSA model, as we and I think a few others around the country call it, in which people pay up front in the winter. And we still use that working capital money, but they come to the market each week or however often or infrequently they want to over the course of the season, pick out what they want, and then we subtract it from a running credit total that they have. And they get sort of as their return on the investment, a 10% bonus, weekly newsletter, all of that. But our our main marketing approach is really just one Saturday farmer's market and our CSA members attending that market with us.
0: And with three acres of farmer's market and a and a CSA, are you guys... Making a living at it?
1: Yeah. So we grow somewhere in the like 80 to 85 range each year. And we net, of course, what we net on our taxes is not what we live on. (laughs) Um, But what we net and live on is probably somewhere around 45 to 50,000, maybe a little more, um, depending upon the year. I actually haven't done good record keeping to sort of see what we're truly living on in the last couple of years since we had our kid. A little bit bit, bit been a little bit busy for that. But um, we part of our strategy is actually just to stay as small as we can and try not to grow and we found that this is an amount of money that satisfies our needs. We are able to live a simple life. Um, we are able to save money for retirement and we don't have any debts. So it's probably not a number that a lot of people would hear and think that that sounds <laughs> really appetizing. And it might not be sustainable for you know some other people, but for us, it's enough money and it's as much as we want to farm. So part of our approach to just making that amount is that we want to have a really meaningful off or slow season in the fall and winter. So basically October, November, December, January, we are doing almost no farm work in September and February are kind of more part-time months. So it gives us a good chunk of time to explore other interests and, uh, just try to, we always say that we're trying to recuperate and rejuvenate our soils and our souls during that time period.
0: I, I always find it fascinating when people take a really deliberate approach to structuring their businesses like that. Was What led you to to decide that that was the scale you wanted to operate at? I mean, your guys' background, I mean, your husband, Mike, he he worked at at uh, Eatwell Farm. We did an interview with, uh, with the owner there, Nigel Walker. That's not a small farm out in California. You spent some time with Full Belly Farm, which is also not a small farm out in California. Was that part of what drove you guys to say, we, we don't want that?
1: Well, I think those models are really awesome models. And I think the beautiful thing about farming is that there are so many different scales that are possible, so many different crop mixes that are possible, marketing outlet mixes that are possible, that it's really just up to the individual grower to decide what works for them. And we wanted to be in Oklahoma for a lot of reasons, but by choosing Oklahoma, we knew we were limiting our ability to grow at least easily in the winter. You can certainly do it, but it's we've tried some fall and winter growing. It's for us like a great deal of work. Compared to you know the time of year when the plants more naturally want to be growing and thriving in the open field, so being on larger farms and seeing bigger agriculture was super key to our being able to come to Oklahoma and start a uh, successful or at least um, not in the not in the red business from the get go um, because we were able to take something like full belly, which at the time was in more of the like 250, 300 acre range, and just scale that down to a couple of acres, which might not seem that realistic, but it actually was great working with someone so successful because they'd really developed and honed their production system from field to market to office work as well. And we're willing to share a lot of that with us. Anything that we asked, which is an incredible gift to anybody who wants to start a farm. So, um, but (laughs) we did see, you know, that having a large farm entails a lot of management of labor. And our farm is actually also just a two-person operation, Though so since we've had our child, who is now three, we do have someone who helps us, who volunteers to help us market um, some of our harvest days, which are Thursday and Friday. Um, we don't think we're that great at people management, and we just didn't want that stress of having employees. And if you're going to have employees, then you you know, need to be a bigger operation. It's just sort of that economy of scale. We didn't want to do interns also because we feel that there are a lot of farms out there already that have amazing apprenticeship and internship programs. And we just kind of wanted to farm together and we enjoy that. And that's what we wanted to stay focused on. So we intentionally bought land that was not going to allow us to expand. We are pretty much farming what can be farmed. Now, if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't recommend that. I would say that you know, you never really know what the future is going to hold. And I wish that we had a little bit more land just for fallow rotation purposes. But, um, you know, we have intended from the beginning to kind of stay small and we have great respect for people who do it a different way and who have a larger operation. It's just that this is what works for us. We're also in a place where, um, when we started 12 and a half years ago, you know, the the market demand was there, but it it wasn't what it is now. So I think it would have been challenging to start out large in a place that didn't have as much of an organic farming community or movement. Uh, I think a lot of that's changed now. And there's certainly a lot more demand than there was in the past in Oklahoma and this region in particular. But we still like to stay small. So, And now that we have a kid, it's actually even more meaningful to be small because before our daughter was born, we worked, you know, crazy hours. And when you're getting any business and certainly any farm business started, you're going to put in insane hours. And the funny thing (laughs) that I like to look back on myself and make fun of myself for is that when we worked on bigger farms, we were like, we will never work this hard. (laughs) that's a big, bad joke. I mean, of course you're going to work that hard and you're going to work so much harder because then you were working there because you're going to be working on your own operation. And it takes so much, you know, heart and soul and blood and guts to get a farm started. But, you know, once we got it started and I'd say kind of after the fifth, sixth year, we started to feel like, okay, you know, We kind of have a sense of what's going on. We're still going to make a bunch of mistakes and we still make more mistakes than we ever think possible. And sometimes we learn from them and sometimes we make them again. Um, But I think that it was, I totally lose my train of thought. What was I just saying? This is what happens when you have a kid. Oh yeah. So that's it. Having a kid. (laughs) That's it. So since we had our daughter, it kind of forced us to stop working some of those super long days and you know, quit at five because the kid needs to go to bed and she needs dinner. And we both want to be present for that. And we don't want one of us to be out in the shop still working or in the fields hoeing while the other one is in having family time. So it was really you know, quite a gift to see that we could work less and still make the same amount of money and still keep our customers and still be happy and have this other focus of our lives. Because we used to joke before we had a kid that the farm was our baby and, you know, get these laughs if we would be giving a talk to people or be at a conference and say that. But it wasn't that funny when we had her because we realized how true that had been that we really had poured a lot of ourselves into the farm before having a kid. And now we needed to pour it into our kid. So it's, it's definitely great to finally have more of that balance and perspective and to just focus on working less.
0: So I, I want to go in a couple of different directions here all of a sudden I, I'd like to talk a little bit about the history of your farm and then uh, and then I'd like to talk about how your farm changed when when you started putting more limitations on it on um, you know particularly around the time but you guys have been farming since when
1: So we moved from California back to Oklahoma in the fall of 2003 and naively thought that this being Oklahoma and a place of many open spaces that we would find affordable, good farmland in no time. And that didn't happen. And luckily, an incredibly kind family came to our rescue and let us lease land. So we leased land actually in the Tulsa city limits for three years. And that was amazing. Originally, I thought, Oh, no, you know, I want to buy my own place first and put all my heart and soul into that place. But it was so wonderful not to have the stress of a mortgage hanging over our heads those first couple of years, and to have just the support of it. They happen to be another farm couple who let us use their barn, their equipment, and just kind of try out some of our ideas without the pressure of you know, having your own farm that you're trying to pay for. And um, in those first three years, we were actually, and because we live in Oklahoma, (laughs) where land is pretty cheap, which is a big part of why we moved here. um, In addition to the community and family aspects, uh, we were able to buy our farm our fourth season. And, you know, it was a little over $100,000. So it's, it's nothing like what farmers are dealing with in terms of prices in other parts of the country. Had a small farmhouse that needed more work than we (laughs) realized when we bought it. And um, so we've actually been able to stay debt free for our entire 12 and a half years, which has been really great for us, because it just takes some of that pressure off, you know, and when we get Twelve inches of rain in a day, or we get a crazy blister beetle outbreak. It just isn't as over the top stressful as it would be if we were worried that the crops were gonna fail and we wouldn't be able to, you know make a payment. So we kind of started out, I guess, just on like an acre and doing a lot of double cropping of that land because we were limited in our space. Now that we have our own land, we really just do a single crop on a bed and because we're a two person operation we're really substituting tractors and equipment for labor so we definitely you know have our little assembly line of implements that we love and use that make it possible for us to be a two person operation
0: talk to me about that because i think it's it's just in the numbers that that you're that you're mentioning and and again tractors even i mean you're clearly not following this somebody called it JMF style recently to me, the, the, the JM40, you know, one acre and a hundred thousand dollar an acre kind of a thing. Um, you know, you guys, and, and choosing to do some more mechanization and choosing to, um, well, like you said earlier, replicate some of those larger scale systems on a smaller scale. Um, and I, and I think that I, I totally get why you did that because that was your background and, and that's similar to what I did on my farm. But, I'm curious about how you've gone about making that adaptation,
1: well, so we don't have the greatest soils in the world. We don't have, you know, bad soil, obviously, or we wouldn't buy it. But we don't have midwestern soils with you know, the glacial deposits. We don't have alluvial soils from some deep river. So um, you know, part of our system has been to try to, Deal with weed control, which is like a major issue in this part of the country, because we have really long spring, summers, and fall, and it's like subtropical here in the summer. So the weeds that grow here are just like you know little beasts because they have everything they need. They get heat, they get water, they don't have competitors. Um, so trying to deal with our weed pressure kind of through the Anne and Eric Nordell method of you know weeding the soil, not the crop, and Building up fertility through cover crops, which is also a big part of why we don't farm um, in the fall and winter in our situation, because we just put the whole farm into a cover crop at like the beginning or middle of September, and that's really key for us. Just because you know it's it's key for weed growth or weed control and fertility growth.
0: And and because of where you're located there in Oklahoma. I assume that when you put something into a cover crop in the fall, it just keeps on growing.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've kind of been strategic about actually not doing some of the stuff that won't winter kill because it can be, it can involve more spring tillage trying to kill that stuff than we want to do. So we, we actually just do an oat that will finally kind of kill off in January an Austrian winter pea and then a forage radish. And the, Peas lately have actually not been going through the winter quite like we would like, even though it hasn't been that cold. So we're kind of looking into a veg possibility for next year. Um, But yeah, that's, that's kind of the mix that we use. And so yeah, we did take this California larger system that is like a honed system and applied it here. So we have a rototiller, although we're looking into the possibility of a spader just in terms of our, you know, our guilty pleasure is tillage and we try to minimize it as much as we can. But, um, you know, it's, it's how we're able to do what we do without labor, um, over the five month period that we're marketing. So we have a Buckeye bed shaper uh, that we come in to make a five foot bed and they are 200 feet long. We use some just super cheap three point hitch tractor mounted cultivators that we've adapted with different knives and shovels and sweeps over the years to cultivate our one and two row beds. And we use a mechanical transplanter to do transplanting. And even though it's just two of us and there are two chairs back there, uh, I drive because I'm not, I'm just too anal with those transplants. Like if I miss one, I freak out and I'm like, stop the tractor, stop the tractor. Whereas Mike can at least just keep going and putting them in. Um, And then we'll like, just kind of loosen the bolts in the back and move it over if we want to do one or two rows. And uh, that works amazingly well. My God, we transplanted everything by hand our first year when we were 26. And we were like, we will not be doing this at 46 if we transplant 30,000 plants by hand every year. So, uh
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I remember <Yeah>. that feeling. <laughs> and
1: we don't transplant as <laughs> like that many now either because we've kind of learned some of those lessons. But, yeah, so we have a newer Massey Ferguson that we got in 8 And we have an old John Deere that we got our second season, which probably over time has cost us as much as a new tractor would have. Um, So, you know, it was cheap and it was what we could afford at the time, but definitely has taken its toll on our repair budget. And we kind of use both of those for different purposes. Uh, We have just like a used grain drill that we use for our cover crop, uh, we use a Planet Junior cedar walk behind and on our bed maker kind of drill holes and put bolts in the back so that we can have, you know, one, two, three, four, five row crops. And then just walk right. down those rows, those lines that have been marked on the bed with the Planet Junior plant. And yeah, I mean, the rest of it is is pretty much manual labor. Although we did fabricate a little bed lifter like a digger with a friend, which was something we learned also in California to try to help us harvest potatoes, garlic, carrots, just do a little less of that digging fork work.
0: Right. Right. Something that just goes under the beneath the bed on and, and just lifts that lifts up the soil and drops it back down to just kind of shatter. Exactly.
1: And I mean, it doesn't work in, you know, five inch rains, (laughs) but it'll work when the conditions are favorable.
0: Most things don't work in five-inch
1: <laughs> Yeah, and uh, that has definitely been a challenge, farming in Oklahoma, because we just get crazy weather here. We're kind of where the Gulf air meets the Arctic mass, and it all collides over Oklahoma, and it makes for some interesting farming.
0: So I'm just curious, Emily, what size is your, your Massey Ferguson tractor? like how many horsepower? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's like 35, 40, 45 depending upon what's going behind it I feel. Right. Um, but it's, you know, it's it works hard with our rototiller when we have some shanks that we put behind the wheels on the side of the rototiller to just try and prevent compaction with our tires. And, you know, it's it's working. <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay. Oh, and again, just just curious about about the, the size and the yeah. scale there, and how you're doing that. You know, we you know on on my farm, we took our we took uh, basically everything we'd learned at Harmony Valley Farm in Wisconsin, and and sh- shrunk it down to a 20 acre scale. And, you know, you, I mean, you guys have kind of taken that, you know, with larger, even a larger farms in Harmony Valley and shrunk it down to something that's even smaller than that 20 acre scale. So just kind of curious about how those translations work. Now, you don't use a cultivating tractor on your
1: farm. We don't. I mean, we looked into that, but Oklahoma just doesn't have a big history of vegetable production. So there, there weren't the used ones that we were wanting to buy at the time. And, you know, by the time we could have afforded to bring one from out of state We really didn't need it because we'd figured out how to use the three-point hitch cultivator. I mean, obviously it's blind cultivation, but what's great about the bed shaper is that we've got these nice deep furrows and the shovels on the side of the cultivator just kind of glide effortlessly through there. I mean, if you fall asleep, you're going to take out plants, but you just kind of need to look behind you every little bit and make sure you're still on target and it's pretty effective.
0: I think a lot of times we get hung up on needing those cultivating tractors, but I, I actually learned to cultivate on a, on rear mount equipment. Uh-huh. And, and it, it is, it's a different, it's a different skill set, but, but it it's certainly something that you can do and you can kill a lot of weeds. That yeah.
1: Way. It's, we can get within a, like an inch or two of the plant depending upon what's growing and, you know, some of the soil will, kind of fall within the row, which is great because it kind of shades out smaller weeds that are just germinating. And then we can either quickly come in with the hoe if we need to or not. But we begin because we're a two-person, we really don't do that much hoeing because we just we don't have the time. And I don't like weeding. (laughs) I hate it. I always feel like there's something better that I could be doing besides weeding. So Probably we spend the most amount of time weeding now when we have our overwintered crops. Cause you know, our first market is the first Saturday in April. And even for here, that's early. So we have spinach, carrots, babas, garlic, sometimes onions that we've planted in October, November, depending upon the crop. That the weediest crops are these crops because, you know, they've been growing throughout the winter. But Most of it, you know, at this point is not too terribly weedy, knock on wood. Um, I hope I don't say that. And then this year get, you know, what's the word, swallowed in weeds. But yeah, we just, we kind of focus on crops that are going to be in the ground for a long time. And using the Nordell's approach has been really successful for us in terms of you know, trying not to have a huge amount of weed seeds that are germinating on us each year.
0: So when you say using the Nordell approach, are you, this is the, this is that, that process where you're a year of vegetables and a year of fallow and a year of vegetables and a year of fallow? That's
1: their approach because they had, they were wise and got enough land (laughs) the beginning to permit that. But, um, The way that we've adapted it and what they did when they established their property was kind of do, unfortunately, some strategic tillage that first year, maybe more than you'd like to do. But to kill, especially perennial grasses like Bermuda grass and our area is a huge one. And if you don't kill that, like right away, you're going to be fighting it throughout your farming career. So what we did our first season was strategic tillage, like, you know, when the soil wasn't dry, but the forecast wasn't for a lot of rain and it was going to be very hot. So we could kind of just over time to the Bermuda grasses reserves and its roots. And it was really, really great the first year and getting rid of that stuff. Cover crops then kind of maintain that. And they were also helpful in the first year in getting rid of the Bermuda. And then we basically have to till a perimeter around our field throughout the season to keep the Bermuda from creeping back in. And it would probably take, you know, just one season for it to retake our field if we didn't till around it. Because in Oklahoma, we're really dealing with a lot of pasture land and grazing land, especially in this part of the state. So if you have soil that is even moderately decent, it is going to have been sprigged to Bermuda before you get it. Um so it's just something that we have to kind of deal with here.
0: Any of those perennial grasses are just nasty. Yeah, they're really nasty.
1: With. And if you let your, you know, annuals like if you let amaranth go to seed, forget about it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trouble to no end. So what kind of, you mentioned you're using a transplanter yeah. and a, a mechanical, um, it, it looked like on your website, like you were using something like a mechanical 1000, just one of these that, that grabs the, grabs the stem of the plant and then sets it all down in the ground. Exactly.
1: Yep. And it's okay. takes us about 15 minutes to transplant one, 200 foot long bed in two rows of plants.
0: So that'd be like seven minutes up and seven minutes back. exactly.
1: And that's like time for filling in and kind of adjusting sprockets if need be for plant spacing.
0: So, I mean, you're able to get quite a lot of plants in, in a pretty short period of time. Yes.
1: Yeah. I mean, everything about being a two person farm is just trying to get as efficient as possible and spend the least amount of time on something. Uh, So kind of like our... Spring season, like many farmers, is just dedicated to getting the plants in the ground, getting the ground prepared and getting the plants in the ground, setting up irrigation if it's needed, doing kind of minimal weeding as needed. But since we end Labor Day, our summer season is really just about harvesting at that point and um, kind of tilling in beds from the spring and summer as they're done and planting them in cover crop, you know, as soon as we get them harvested. So that's kind of like where our labor breaks down over the course of a season.
0: So you mentioned earlier the the limitations that you guys have put on well and it seems like the story of your of your farm is about limitations. You know what was it was buying a limited space of land so that you you didn't get too big. You guys are choosing to stay small and not do a whole bunch of work with season extension and and you guys are are limiting your hours, um, and and you talked a little bit about having a kid. Now your your kids three years old yes, now. Yes. Yeah, born in November of twenty twelve.
1: Great right? work, homework. Kudos to you. Well,
0: I do. I do <laughs> yes, my homework. you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll be sending
1: up.
0: I'll be sending a birthday card <laughs> next year. Uh, the the when when you guys made that transition from you know from from working like maniacs to to changing to saying okay well now we we got to put these these bookends on our day so that we can spend the time with the kid um what kind of effect did that have on your farm
1: yeah so the, like couple of years prior to having her we had finally been slowing down our hours more as well, just because you know the longer you do something, the more refined your system becomes, the more efficient you become. Which I feel is like the biggest part of the two-person farm piece is just trying to manage your time efficiently and get your systems down as efficiently as possible. So some of that was you know happening where we wouldn't have felt like we could have a kid and lose our farm baby to a real baby. Um, But having her, you know, gosh, that first year, oh my gosh, like it's impossible to describe what we went through. I think we went through just such a crazy flux of emotions like, oh my gosh, we're out in the middle of a very rural place. Is this, you know, where she's going to want to grow up? And okay, we thought this was the right amount of money before we had a kid, but do we still feel that way? Are we earning enough? And, you know, just kind of going through that identity crisis that I think parenting might bring for hopefully not just us, but some other people as well. You know, kind of what we went through after doing a ton of thinking and a ton of talking was that really all you can do in life is take it year by year. And, you know, now it works really well for us. Our kid doesn't have to be in daycare. She can come out to the fields with us initially that first season it was hard because we went from being a two person farm to like a one and a half person farm because we thought very naively that we could take that kid out and do way more with her than we could I mean every kid is different their temperaments are different you're not going to know till you have it what you're going to get. But, you know, I'd, she'd be happy in her little backpack carrier and I'd be walking around the farm and then I'd go pick up a hoe and think, what's the difference? I'll like walk and hoe and like five minutes into it, she'd be crying like, wait, this is not part of the deal. But.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, well, and, and I don't, are, are all kids different about this or do they all need like three miles an hour? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I know like, like. My daughter was the same way. You know, you, you if if we were if you were in motion, she was asleep. But the moment you stopped, mm-hmm. God, she just, you know, she was she was stirring. Mm-hmm. And and then you had to get back in motion again really quick because <laughs> otherwise really bad things would happen. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So I mean that was a challenge and it, it really did force us to think about just our future in general. And I think a lot of like younger farmers who end up having kids go through something of an identity crisis if they have kids or if they want to have kids and think that farming isn't going to allow them to do it, like they're not going to be able to afford it. And, you know, I know people who have gotten out once they have a kid because they feel like they deserve to make more money or whatever the case may be. Um, And I think, you know, everybody's situation is obviously so different and unique. What we ultimately decided for ourselves is that you know, as she gets older, each year gets better. She's like, when she was two, we'd take her out into the fields and she'd be like rolling around in the dirt like a dog, just like reveling in it and picking the baby tomatoes and baby, baby. And last year, you know, she was even older and was able to stay out there almost without any kind of constraints. So we do hire babysitting help for our harvest mornings and we have, you know, since she was born, but she comes out with us in the afternoons and this past year we only had help for like half of the Friday mornings of the year and the rest of the time she was out there with us and you know, she likes it <laughs> and she is able to find ways to entertain herself and we talk to her and Hopefully she won't come back in 20 years and tell us about all the therapy she's had to have to recover from this experience growing up in the dirt on a farm. But um, yeah, I think really what it taught us from the get go is that like kids need to eat at a regular hour. So do you. But <laughs> they like, you know, need the diaper change. They need the diaper changed, and you might be willing to eat at nine for dinner, but they want to eat at five. So, you know, it kind of freaked us out at first, and that's why I said we went through that crisis period. But we ultimately were like, "Hey, this is like, in some respects, what more could we want? Because we don't really have to have a lot of childcare. Our kid gets to be with both of their parents at home all the time." And eventually I'm sure she won't like that, but for now, you know, she loves it because she gets to be with us and we like getting to be with her. So it's actually turned out, you know, to be a blessing that we couldn't see in the beginning um, when we were more worried about, I guess, some of the superficial stuff. And we'll just take it year by year because that's all you can do.
0: That's great. I'd like to stop here and get a word from our sponsors, Emily, and then and then uh, come back and talk about marketing vegetables in Oklahoma. Sounds great. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light Potting Mixes. When you're growing transplants, all of the investments you've made in plant materials, heat, labor and overhead depend absolutely on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And if you're an organic grower, you're probably using a media based on compost. That means you should be looking for the best compost. Most organic potting soils have two basic parts, the compost and everything else. At Vermont Compost Company, Carl Hammer and his crew are very, very intentional about the inputs they put into their compost. While they're making use of waste products, waste disposal is not their primary goal. Ingredients are sourced consciously and with the end in mind. The same goes for the everything else part. Like the best in art, everything in Vermont compost potting soils has a purpose, whether it's the chips of ocean blue granite or the kelp that provides micronutrients and a little smell of the ocean fully composted compost, top quality ingredients, and a real sense for the art and the science of plant production, combined with a real commitment to organic growing professionals to create a consistent product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming is, it's nice to have something that you can count on. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmers Web, small business software for farmers. Farmers use Farmers Web to streamline work with wholesale buyers, such as restaurants, schools, corporate kitchens, distributors, and retail stores, making working with each buyer easier and increasing the number of buyers your farm business can work with. Taking orders by phone or email, collating them into spreadsheets, and entering them into an accounting program for invoicing takes time that you could be spending on farming and sales or anything other than office work. With Farmers Web, your wholesale customers can place their orders online or you can take their orders over the phone, by email, or in person and enter them in yourself. You can define different payment terms for different buyers, give select buyers special pricing, and generate pick lists, packing slips, and PDF catalogs for your customers. You can keep track of payments that you receive by check or buyer payments by credit card you'll write into your bank account. Farmers Web can even help facilitate arrangements with third-party logistics providers or help you coordinate deliveries with neighboring farms. A flat monthly fee means that no amount of orders or number of buyers affects your costs, and you can pause, cancel, or switch plans types from month to month at any time, even during the off-season. Farmer's Web is available to farms, food hubs, and local food artisans nationwide. Farmersweb.com. All right, and we're back with Emily Oakley from Oklahoma. Um, So are those related? Does the Oakley and the Oklahoma thing go and together? And I live Oaks, so don't forget that part. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy. People often laughed at that one, but it just is coincidence.
0: Are you able to use that in your marketing?
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Trying to come up with a farm name was like the hardest thing we've ever done starting our farm, far none. Because we worked at places that had these really cool and really awesome sounding names and we felt the pressure to come up with something equally cool, which we ultimately did not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, we got like Oak Tree Farm as a suggestion and apples and oaks and all kinds of stuff. But ultimately, that is not what we went with. We were looking at a piece of property and it had three springs on it. And we were like... Shoot, we need to get a name so we can get our federal employer identification number. Let's just choose three springs farm and then we'll switch it later. Oh, right, right. Like you're ever gonna switch your name once you get started because then it's everywhere. You could like you're married to it. We didn't know that. So ultimately we ended up buying a piece of property with three springs on it. So perhaps it was serendipitous. And it works. It
0: definitely <laughs> works. So okay. So talk to me about marketing local organic vegetables in Tulsa, Oklahoma back in, you know, 2003.
1: Yeah. So our first season was 2004. And luckily for us, there was another young couple that had been here several years prior to our moving back, growing organic vegetables. And a farmer's market had gotten started not long after I left Tulsa to go to college because there definitely was not a farmer's market when I grew up. And I mean, organic wasn't even a word that people commonly understood I would say maybe five percent of the public knew what that word was and that might be optimistic um, because I was interested in sustainable agriculture towards the end of high school and when I would talk to people about it you know they just had no concept of what I was talking about that's changed so dramatically you know in the last 20 years so when we marketed. it our produce, you know, that first season, our farmer's market was still relatively small in terms of the overall number of vendors. And that was advantageous and disadvantageous. It was helpful in that there wasn't just a ton of competition out there, but, you know, it wasn't quite the public event that it's become now, you know, when thousands and thousands of people are coming through each Saturday. So if you were to get started farming organic produce and sell at our market now, I think you know your potential for income generation would be a lot higher that first season because there are just more customers and more customers who know what you're growing. You know, I just remember the first time we had arugula at our market stand and the number of people who weren't familiar with it. And now, you know, it just, goes like hotcakes and we almost can't grow enough of it because people love it and everybody knows it. Same thing with heirloom tomatoes. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> yeah. Same thing with heirloom tomatoes and, you know, Tokyo turnips, just all that stuff that market farmers and small scale organic folks in particular tend to grow. It it just takes time to, you know, bring your customer base into touch with some of that stuff. But I also feel like just the food culture in general in the U.S. has evolved so dramatically, like the cooking shows, the Food Network, all of that stuff I do feel like it helps farmers markets, especially in a place like Oklahoma, because when we first started growing kale, like we could not sell that stuff to save our souls. And now, again, we can't grow enough of it. So I think that that has had a lot to do with just this national food movement. So, you know, our first year people would kind of walk by our stand and They look at us and I think they were kind of wondering, are are these kids going to stick around? Are they really for real? And are they, did they really grow that? (laughs) And, you know, now we have such an amazing, wonderful customer base of people that have shopped with us, you know, some of them the entire time that we've been farming and many of them, you know, for 10 plus years. And I would say probably 80% of our sales come through regular customers at this point. There's still, of course, people who come to the market for the first time or who just come for a couple of weeks out of the year when, for example, tomatoes are in. But the vast majority of our sales come through regular customers, which is great because we know them, they know us. You know, At this point, we know each other's stories. And just like they're committing to buy from us, we're committing to grow for them. And it really is what has made this You know, enterprise and made this endeavor of creating a farm here been such a gift because we've had such an amazing reception from our customers. And now we have this farm family that keeps us going.
0: I think it's so cool when you can work with a group of people to. The, who aren't necessarily CSA members. I mean, that's a cool thing, too. But, you know, working with your farmer's market customers or working with your your produce buyers in the grocery stores or the restaurants to really, to really make that kind of change, it's such a privilege to be in a market at that point in time.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a big part of why we moved back here as well. I mean, obviously, I mentioned land being affordable and my family was here, but... we wanted to go to a place where there weren't a lot of other organic vegetable farmers, where we felt like, you know, the demand was really underestimated. And I think a lot of people on the coast at that time felt and expressed to us that we probably wouldn't have enough customers to support us, but the opposite is true. I mean, it's, I, I think that there's still so much more potential here than is being supplied because for whatever reason, there hasn't been the growth of young farmers in this region that we had hoped would happen um, in the time that we've been here. I'm actually really surprised by how few young farmers have gotten started and stayed in farming here, um, which is sad. And if anybody is listening to this anywhere across the country and you want to come to Oklahoma, we want you. There is demand. There is land, and the coasts are tapped out. Come to the middle of the country.
0: <laughs> okay, and I and I'm assuming that you've got your uh, contact information on on uh, on your website. Absolutely. So you know, ca- call Emily up. <laughs> she'll get you. She'll get you hooked That's up. That's right. <laughs> on, okay. So, well, and I and I'm curious. I mean, I don't I don't want to now, now that you said everybody come to Oklahoma and start farming, but I mean. Oklahoma, like you said earlier, it's it's not an easy place to grow vegetables. It's not.
1: I mean, not, okay, that would be my one word of caution. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, very, very hot in the summer. And it's, I feel very variable to climate change and very susceptible to those forces. Last year, we got 80 inches of rain, which is like tropical. Our average is 48. And in 2012, you know... We hardly got any because we were in a severe drought for two years, 11 and 12. And I know for sure, because I was pregnant and farming, gosh darn it, that um, in 2012, that summer, there was a point where Oklahoma was like the hottest place on the planet, literally. And then you can have summers where it doesn't hit 100. I mean, that's not that common, but it can happen. So it's a hard place to farm and that you just can't really plan like at all what your climate's going to be like. And that's true everywhere. It's certainly true. But I feel like there's kind of a joke that people like to come to Oklahoma to study meteorology because it's just so darn hard (laughs) to do it here. And I think (laughs) that goes hand in hand with farming. You know, we tell people if you can farm in Oklahoma, you can farm anywhere. We also you know, get some crazy weeds, like I mentioned, and some crazy pests just because of that long growing season. Um, And I, I hope my people at Full Belly don't take this the wrong way. But when people in California complain about pests, they have no idea what they're talking about. But all that being said, I mean, we're still here and it's still totally possible. It just you know, everything comes with its challenges. Everything comes with its advantages and weather is just one of the big challenges here.
0: What kinds of things have you done to on your farm to make yourselves more resilient with regards to the weather?
1: Gosh, that's such a great question. And one that I wish we had an answer to. And if you can come up with one for us, let us know. I think, you know, this maybe is going to sound like a superficial answer, but (laughs) <laughs> having a really substantial savings account
0: <laughs> gives us. No, you know, you know what? That's that's actually not a superficial <laughs> answer <laughs> at all. I mean, you know that that used to be how people would farm. You 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 planned on losing your entire crop one year out of every three, yeah. and and in fact, the, like the Amish in our area. They kind of take that a similar approach. They only plan to harvest they all their livestock. At least this is, this is what I've been told. So I, I I'm I'm sounding like I like I know what I'm talking about. and I might be doing the modern jackass thing here, <laughs> but but the the Amish in our area they'll they plan to harvest two cuttings of hay a year, and normally you'd get mm. three in this area. That's what all the big farmers get, and so they get their they get their two cuttings of hay. If they get a third cutting of hay, that's the hay they mm. sell. But if they don't, they have enough that the, those first two cuttings of hay, their livestock are, are the the size of the herd or the size of the flock is all sized around getting two cuttings of hay. And the third is excess. And I think it's kind of that same idea of you just, you know, if you're always running at capacity, right, you're, you don't have any resiliency. Right,
1: exactly. I mean, we probably lose, I don't know, $5,000 a year. On average maybe that's a little high to pests or weather and we just know that that's gonna happen you know we might get hail that demolishes our tender greens the day before we're supposed to harvest it and we just have come to stop stressing out about it quite as much because there's nothing you can do about it and you just have to know like plan on hail and if it doesn't hail then great And we definitely use a lot of row covers and we always have kind of hoops and row covers in reserve in case there's a threat of a record breaking late frost in May, which was unheard of, or, you know, hail or whatever the case may be. But the savings account is what gives us the peace of mind because, you know, the, the weather doesn't necessarily affect our income dramatically from year to year. Uh, but just having that mental cushion and literal cushion helps us not stress out so much because we're admittedly anal people. <laughs> and, you know, it's hard when you put all this time and energy and love and passion into something and the weather doesn't cooperate where you see, you know, your crop dissolve in front of your face because of a weather situation or a pest situation. But You know, just having that material resiliency gives us emotional resiliency, which that's what I mean by I hope I don't sound superficial, but it just it takes some of the pressure off. It just doesn't make it as big of a deal. And just accepting, like, gosh, if there is anything that is as, you know, Zen Buddhist forcing you to accept that with life comes challenges, it's farming. And I mean, we still are learning that lesson, but if you don't accept it at some point early in your career and you're as anal as we are, then you're not going to be able to last. So it's, it's kind of forced itself on us to just let it go.
0: It's interesting to me that that you're practicing that on your farm, but that certainly doesn't seem to be your approach to your, your more public life, Emily. I mean, you, you're kind of a mover and a shaker out there with trying to make change and, uh, and swim upstream (laughs) uh, with your, I mean, you were, I know, for a number of years involved with the National Young Farmers Coalition. Um, I know in our pre-show chat you said that you're now, you're, you know, you've kind of, you're, you're, you're too. I said I was too old. You said you were too old too to really be in the Young Farmers Coalition. But and and then you were recently appointed to the National Organic Standards Board uh, with you know the USDA program by Secretary Vilsack. And so I, I'd be interested to hear you talk about how you got involved in. In kind of that bigger picture, and and in such a big way. I mean, these are both you know two national organizations. These aren't you know this isn't just your backyard, you know, farming and gardening in in uh, in Northeast Oklahoma Association.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the passion for that just comes from what got me into farming in the first place, which was the marriage of environmental and social justice issues, which you know I'd felt been active in even in high school and middle school to some extent. So. You know, part of why we created this farm plan that allows us to have this meaningful off season is to give ourselves time to do sort of the activism and community work that's equally important to us. And it really feeds an important part of our spirits and keeps us going because it connects us to the bigger picture. Um, So, before doing some of this national stuff, we, meaning both Mike and myself, were involved with local boards as well, like some community and school gardening work. And we were on our farmer's market board for an incredible number of years and were co-presidents, and vice presidents. And, you know, those were actually incredible time commitments because like many farmers markets, it's especially at the time that we were working on the board was largely volunteer run. And there wasn't a huge surplus of money to pay people to do the work. And it was sort of this decision, you know, you can kind of continue just going to the market and setting up your booth, doing your stuff, selling your produce, going home and not kind of looking back or, you know, work to try to make it something that would attract more customers and would be a place for more farmers to come and just build that movement. And so that's kind of the route we took, although, you know, there's there's plenty to be said for just going and setting up as well, because markets need those folks too. And that's who we are right now because now we're no longer on the board. And I have to say it's, you know, it's nice to just kind of go and do your thing, but it, It also gives you a sense of community because you get to know other farmers. You get to know, you know, the board members who represent a diverse spectrum of the community. And all of that kind of gave me the background and the board experience to get involved in some of the more national stuff. Like if I hadn't had that experience, I don't know if I would have been as comfortable to step out. So the National Young Farmers Coalition um, kind of came across my radar screen in like late 2009 and then uh, 2010 at a Stone Barns Young Farmers Conference. And the board was getting itself established at that time. And the founders were just like, you know, volunteering their time to get the organization up and going. And so I came on the board at that time. I was on until kind of like midway through my pregnancy when I decided (laughs) it was time to just you know focus on the farm and myself but it's an incredible organization because it really was like very pioneering in its creation with there of course have always been young farmers getting started and this movement was started this organic small-scale agriculture movement was started by young farmers and back to the landers in the 60s and 70s and we're all, here on the backs of the people that created this movement, for sure. I feel really strongly about that. Um, but there was just this with that movement that got created and the energy nationally that was sort of, you know, fomenting around local food and organic food and, you know, knowing your farmer, all of that stuff, I think gave rise to a generation that I would consider to be like even just a little bit younger than me, that is super plugged into local organic food. And the number of colleges that are addressing this is just like, you know, out of control skyrocketed since the time that I went to college in the late 90s. So I think it's really exciting to see that. And I think the National Young Farmers Coalition is really just this incredibly legitimate group of people that are young farmers that are able to give voice to the concerns of, you know, the the young folks around the country are trying to get started and access to land and capital as any farmer and definitely any young farmer will know are the two biggest challenges. And, you know, as land prices go up, is there speculation for land? it's just made it even more challenging and which is why Oklahoma is great. If anyone's listening, (laughs) (laughs) I know I try, I've been trying maybe some of these days it'll, it'll come back and people will come farming here. But anyway, um, it's, it's definitely gained a lot of traction because it's got great leadership but also because it is authentically young farmers and, and because, you know, I think USDA is rightfully concerned as they watch the age of farmers just creep upward year after year and, you know, trying to get sort of that new blood in. And there are young farmers who are starting out, you know, in large scale agribusiness, but the vast majority of young people who are getting into farming are doing so on smaller operations with organic or biological practices and you know come to it from that sense of passion and that perspective so it's it's exciting to see that movement but the movement also then gives opportunity for this type of farming and this group of farmers to have a voice that, you know, they wouldn't necessarily have if they weren't organized. And I won't touch into this too much, but one of the current campaigns that National Young Farmers Coalition is working on, and if people want to learn more about, they can go to their website, is farming as a public service and, you know, trying to legislate some some process for student loan forgiveness for farmers because it is definitely a big barrier for young people getting into farming, especially with the cost of education these days. It's crazy. So, not only is land you know out of control expensive, not only is it hard to get a loan when you've got tons of student debt piled on top of that, it's it can be a challenge for people to get started. So, it's just great that uh, National Young Farmers Coalition is able to make itself known on the public and national stage and give voice to a lot of these issues. So kind of how I got involved in the National Organic Standards Board was through Young Farmers Coalition. And I wrote a guide for them shortly after my daughter was born on trying to encourage young farmers growing vegetables to get certified organic and lay out some of the processes, kind of debunk. Or at least sort of demystify some of uh, the misconceptions or concerns that might be out there, and then address like some of the legitimate worries that people do have about certification in terms of cost and paperwork, and you know just the extra hassle. And then there's certainly those who have a philosophical concern for not getting certified. But working on that guide um, gave me some insight into really like the large number of young farmers that are growing organically, but are opting out of certification. And, you know, at first blush, that doesn't really seem like that big of a deal. And it's not because everybody can do what they want to do individually. It's, that's the beauty of farming. And at the same time, you know, there is some, frankly, like for me, sadness when that happens and is happening on such a large scale, because what it means is that a large number of growers who are growing using these methods who are representing some of the ideals and values that started the organic movement in the first place are not choosing to be like counted as a part of that movement and who are skewing some of the, you know, certification aspects of it. The implication for that is that You know, when USDA does its farmer survey and so many of the young farmers who are growing organically are not certified, they're just not counted as actually being organic growers throughout the U.S. And that has real policy implications for money that's awarded to research, money that's awarded to, you know, the Equip Organic High Tunnel Initiative, all that stuff, stuff that, you know, presumably some of these growers do want to tap into and resources that they might want to take advantage of. But also more importantly, like, you know, there's definitely, I have heard across the country that concern that, you know, organic certification is now just for large scale agribusiness farms. And, you know, that will only be true if people just choose not to certify. And I fully respect people who, you know, have a libertarian sense about them and do not want to get certified for philosophical reasons. And I won't try to make an argument for them, but if there are people who are not certifying simply because you know, they think the paperwork is going to be burdensome or the cost is going to be too high, it really isn't as difficult as people think it might be. The records that are kept are really those that you would keep for your business anyway. And with the cost share program of 75%, you know, that can vary in terms of who your certifier is, what your actual like bottom line payment is. And those of us who are lucky enough to have state departments of agriculture doing the certification process, you know, probably going to pay less, but it is still much more affordable than I think people sometimes might originally expect. So you know, people are opting out simply for those reasons. I would really love to see them just consider it and maybe meet with a local certifier or a few and see what, what comes of it. Because, you know, until you go through the certification process, you might not actually fully realize everything that's involved. Our first three years that we were here, we were on leased land and the fall before we got here, they had applied urea. So we couldn't certify for those first 3 years and i know i know it's it's really easy when you have a direct relationship with your customers and they know and trust you you don't necessarily need to get certified but i can also tell you having gotten certified once we bought our new land just how much smoother the process is when somebody asks me are you organic i can just say yes and last year we actually kind of took the step of printing up the big USDA organic label on like a three by three poster and we put it up at the market. And it's crazy as this is going to sound, customers that had been shopping with us forever <laughs> didn't necessarily know we were actually certified organic because it wasn't such a big part of our presence. And, you know, I think it's something that they could understand and relate to. And it just so quickly communicates what you do without these caveats of, well, we're not certified, but you know, dot, dot, dot. So my, my plug is just, you know, people aren't doing it simply because of the effort and expense. I would just hope they would kind of consider doing it as part of joining a movement because the only way that the standards are going to continue to remain, on the foundation of how this movement was built is if small farmers continue to stay certified and get certified and be involved.
0: And I think if, I mean, if we've learned anything in the present political climate, it's that, that nothing's perfect, you know, but it's better to, I mean, you all you have to do is look at the natural label to see that having an organic label is better than having Nothing. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Like in the market that I am in, and I know this isn't true for everyone, but you know, I've been side by side with vendors who've been asked by their customers, you know, are you organic? And the vendor knows exactly what the customer wants to hear. They want to hear yes. And I hear people say yes when, you know, I've done a farm visit and I saw the herbicides being sprayed while I was there. What certification does is it protects farmers and it protects consumers. I mean, of course it can protect consumers. I think people know that. But as a farmer, it's also really critical to remember that it protects us because it is easy to just say yes. But without the standards, without the certification process, it just kind of devolves into a free-for-all because then organic can kind of mean whatever anybody wants it to mean. And that's how that's how national certification you know, came into being is that it did mean something different across the country. And this at least provides for, you know, a set of standards that everyone understands. And, you know, when people say beyond organic, I completely agree, like use the standards as your foundation and then keep building them from there. Or, you know, get on the NOSB if you're so inclined and, you know, try to work to have your voice heard in the process so that the standards reflect the values of the farm community that you're a part
0: of. So how did you end up actually getting on the NOSB? Yeah.
1: So, I mean, I I knew of its existence, you know, long before even, you know, working with the National Young Farmers Coalition. I actually learned about the organic like the legislation that created the USDA label back in the late 90s when I was in college and I remember so distinctly going to a NOFA meeting and seeing Elizabeth Henderson get up there and try to rally other growers to you know comment and give their voice to help craft the legislation so that this movement that they'd created would stay true to their values and it's been on my radar screen sort of since then but I never thought of actually sitting on it uh, until doing that guide for organic certification for young farmers. Like that kind of made me realize that there there is like a role to play in terms of you know trying to trying to stay active and vocal and participatory about organic standards. And I I feel really passionately about organic farming in general. And so this is a really natural dovetail. So. After I did that guide, the director of National Young Farmers Coalition just kind of sent me the email link when announcements for new nominees were taking place for the NOSB, the National Organic Standards Board, asked me if I would want to apply. And I mean, I will be honest and say that I definitely took some time to even wonder if I should try to apply because because of the political nature of it and because there's a lot on the docket that gets discussed that um, has a lot of heated beliefs from people on different sides. And, you know, I, I don't want to get like too wrapped up in all of that stuff. Um, I still want a positive feeling at the end of the day when I go to bed. Um, But I ultimately felt like, you know, Hey, the way that these standards remain, what we want them to be is by people continuing to stay active and to work for them. So uh, I had to get my congressional delegation support. And I, that is really, really key. Like if anybody is ever considering something like this, you know, getting my um, senators and congressmen to sign on to a letter of support was basically the foundation. And then really thankfully through National Young Farmers Coalition, I had met with, and they also introduced me with uh, to, other national organizations that are kind of stakeholders in this process who were willing to write letters of support for me. And I think that helped just because it showed that I wasn't, you know, just, you know, some unconnected farmer in my little corner of the world, but had at least some touch into the bigger stakeholder process. And, then you just kind of wait and see who else, I guess, I don't know how it goes on behind the scenes, but they get their applications. They decide, you know, who looks viable. I had an interview with the deputy director of the NOP, the National Organic Program. And then many, many months later, they just made the announcement. And then I realized, oh, wow, okay, I'm on, I'm on
0: this board. I'm, I'm on the yeah. list. So. It's great. Have you, have you done anything with the NOSB yet or are you, is your first meeting going to be here in this, this, uh, this yeah, April? Yeah.
1: So there are weekly subcommittee meetings and everyone is assigned to two or three subcommittees and mine are crops and materials slash GMO. Those are my two committees. So every Tuesday, um, in my time frame, it's, or my time zone, it's around noon or one. I have a one hour meeting and, They encouraged me to, and it is super wise to create just a separate email for the NOSB stuff because there is just a ton of stuff out there. For example, in the Crops Committee, some of what takes place is reviewing materials that are being petitioned for inclusion. Like, you know, somebody has a product that they feel meets the organic standards. They petition the USDA, the National Organic Program, to be included on the national list in the Crops Committee reviews that, that petition. Um, and this is a super watered down version. There are technical reviews and, you know, outside experts are helped, you know, are called in to weigh in on that stuff, but that's just some of what happens. So you're getting you're getting a lot of emails throughout the week that, uh, you need to kind of stay abreast of. Then I have a training at the end of this month, um, kind of an orientation to some of the processes and procedures. And then, yes, my first public meeting that I will have ever attended of the NOSB is in April. And then there's one every spring and one every fall in a different part of the country.
0: That's really, it's a lot of work. I mean, this (laughs) isn't, this isn't just a small commitment. I, I, I'm, I'm curious how you're going to balance this out with the rest of your farming and parenting responsibilities. Yeah,
1: you know, I have been shocked that that has been what everybody who has any NOSB knowledge has said to me. They've all said, I don't know how you're going to do this. And many have said, you're not even going to be able to farm anymore. But, I mean, maybe this is naive and I'm I'm certainly still so new to this process. But I did do like – a lot of time on my board work. Um, even though it was more locally, some of it in the past, you know, as the co-president of my farmer's market, it was easily every week, like a 20 hour a week volunteer job. And I actually don't have the time to do something like that again, but I know, you know, what it, what board work can do and boards will take as much as you will give them like that's kind of the nature is they'll let you give as much as you want to give and it's up to you to say you no know, I kind of need this is as much as I can give you and now I need to go farm or now I need to go be a parent and you know I've been pretty clear that I am not that crazy 20 30 40 hour a week person that I was before and I just don't have that time but I do have Enough time. I hope to give it a substantial and meaningful contribution. And you know, at the end of the day, this is how I make my living. I, you know, don't have. Oh, I didn't inherit any money that would set me up for the rest of my life. Like farming is how I live, so I ultimately have to make that my first priority, as well as my family. So that's that's my. But we'll see. I'm still new, so.
0: It, I'm just gonna say, I mean, it's something I love about the organic farming movement is that that people are so willing in this movement to to give, and and it's it, it's kind of crazy, you know. It's it's one of the things they say in fundraising. I spent a number of years on the board of of Moses, mm-hmm. the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Services, and so we went through these fundraising trainings, and they say, well, you know the 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 people who are the busiest are the ones that you end up getting on the board, and the people that you know, the people that that are already giving the most are the people that are going to give you the most. <laughs> you know, you don't you don't go at you don't go after the people that have a, bu- a pile of time or a pile of money or or, you know, you go, you go after the people that that are that are already. Putting the money out there, putting the time out there, because those are the people that find it and give it. And I, what's so great, I think about the organic community in particular is, you know, we're we're all out there working really yeah. hard, and and especially the farmers are just, you know, long hours and hard work, and they always find time to be involved in these other activities. Now, I don't I don't know very many organic farmers who who aren't involved uh-huh. in some other aspect of of. In, in, I should say, who aren't involved. In, in some sort of an activist role in their community, whether whether it's being on the board of the farmer's market or whether it's, you know, most of them aren't serving on the NOSB, but serving on the board of their local organic community or, you know, doing a workshop at a conference or getting on a podcast because, you know, I mean, all you're going to get out of this is a month, you know, that's <laughs> it's like, you know, but here you are, right? You know, and, and I think that's just so it's it's one of the really cool things about our community. And I, I love that. About
1: I us. totally agree. And I think that it's why people get in and stay in organic farming. I think, you know, obviously people are not doing it because it's a get rich quick scheme. I think people do it because they have a tremendous passion for it. And, you know, we get a great deal in return in terms of lifestyle and food and community and all of that stuff. But I think. It's that passion that propels people to farm that also propels them to be involved in the bigger picture, you know, in whatever shape that may take. So I I totally agree with everything you've just said.
0: With that note of agreement, thank you very much. We're going to turn to the lightning round here and hit you with some some quick questions here at the end of the show. So I'm really curious because you guys are clearly a very tool-focused farm. What's your favorite tool on the farm?
1: Well, I would say that the Planet Junior Push Seeder is mine and Mike's favorite tool because it is so versatile and uh, we can use it for different applications. And it's so great at getting a good seed bed and reliable germination.
0: And the Planet Junior is really interesting because it's it's – ancient technology i mean this is this is turn of the last century that this tool was developed and uh, and i just i love how well it still works
1: exactly we actually i mean we we're constantly trying out all kinds of new tools but you know some of these things that have been around for a long time are around cuz they do their job well
0: and you actually have an article on your website about the Planet Junior Cedar um, that we'll post a link to so that if, if people want to go and learn learn more, learn why Emily loves this and why you're going to want to go search one out, uh, we'll we'll get, get you that link in the show notes.
1: Awesome. And it was a farmer in Massachusetts who generously shared her seed plate holes and the various varieties and crops that would properly fit through each of the holes that helped us use that tool well from the beginning so it's it is that just continuum of sharing knowledge and being free and open with it that that makes these tools so useful
0: so emily as you've as you've learned to farm in a in a completely different climate than where you you actually learned to farm out in California you know but as you as you learn to farm in, in oklahoma what what kinds of resources did you turn to to get the information that you needed about growing organic vegetables in a crazy new place?
1: You know, as crazy as this is going to sound, farming in Oklahoma isn't as different from California and the KP Valley where we were, as one might think, simply because they also have long, hot summers and they have a really distinct you know, spring and summer season, whereas in the Northeast where we went to school and where Mike is from. Had we gone from farming there to Oklahoma, I think the learning curve would have been a lot harder. Um, But just in terms of like planting dates and varieties, a lot of that translated, but what we needed the local adaptation for, we went to our uh, local cooperative extension, Oklahoma State University Cooperative Extension, And it was an excellent place to start for resources. ATRA, of course, was really helpful, but that's kind of more of a a national scale. But what helped us figure out, you know, when are we supposed to put green beans in the ground here exactly? It was our cooperative extension fact sheets and local agents that were incredibly generous and helpful with their knowledge and information.
0: And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it I be? I
1: just tell myself not to stress out so much that first year. <laughs> I think we were really worried that like this, you know, $25,000 that we'd worked so hard to save as like interns. And then in, when I was in graduate school as a research assistant, you know, you know, you're not making a ton of money. So it was, it wasn't easy to save that 25,000 bucks. And I think, we were freaked out that we we're going to lose it and never make it back. And what if things didn't grow? And what if people didn't like our stuff? And, you know, I just wish I could have dialed back the worry like 10 degrees and just, you know, relaxed a little bit more and, you know, had more, I guess, just faith that the process would work out because it is a huge leap of faith. And it is a huge risk that you're taking because you don't know what's going to happen. But looking back now, I realize, you know, plants want to grow. And if you have enough experience, like, you're probably going to be okay. (laughs) They're probably gonna do all right. They might not be as awesome as they would be, you know, five years or 10 years later. But, you know, it is not quite as daunting as I think it felt um, that first that
0: first go around. That's really great. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Emily.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I really enjoyed speaking with you.
0: I enjoyed it too. And I I hope you have a great evening with your family.
1: Thank you. I certainly will.
0: All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again. This is episode 56 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Oakley. That's O A K L E Y. Thank you again to everyone who came up and said hi while I've been on the road these last few weeks at Illinois, Oregon, and Lacrosse, Wisconsin. I had a blast being everywhere I've been this winter and meeting all of the great people that I've met on the road. Thank you so much for making it worth being out there. Take a moment to head on over to the website, FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com, to sign up for my newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga, and I'll keep you in the loop on hiring strategies, urgency and importance, and keeping your farm out of financial trouble. You can also head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show, or talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. Your reviews and your referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach out to an ever-growing circle of listeners. One more thing, I appreciate so much all of the guest suggestions that I received through the contact form on farmer 2 Please let me know who you would like to hear from, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there, and keep the tractor running.